0: So, in chapter 32 of Genesis, we are told of Jacob wrestling with God. And as we learned from last week's sermon, this is not an uncommon thing in the life of a believer. In fact, this is the common and normal life of the believer. God causes us to wrestle with Him, to wrestle with the reality of Him. The reality of him in our life and in our walk with him. And just like with Jacob, this is not a fair match. It's not an equal match. Jacob really never did stand a chance in wrestling with the Lord. And neither do we. When we wrestle with God, we, like Jacob, we we don't wrestle for victory. We wrestle from a place of victory. We wrestle with God in God. And just like with that wrestling match that Jacob has told to us in our last chapter, our wrestling match is not to prove that God is stronger than we are. Nor is it to happen, does it happen for us to hone our wrestling styles or skill. Our wrestling is done for the sole purpose of defeating a man and the man that we wrestle to defeat the one that we wrestle with a god with god with is us we are told when jacob wrestled with the lord that he would not let go of him and that the lord then touched his hip and permanently rendered him crippled and then he asked jacob who he was and then he gave him a new name jacob had to be brought To the realization of who he was in his flesh, in order for him to be able to realize who he is in the spirit. Jacob is Israel. He's still Jacob in his flesh, still a sinner that needs a Savior even after being redeemed. But he is also Israel, with the name, with the meaning of that name being god preserves and our chapter from today chapter 33 is a wrestling match for us jacob has had his turn now it is our turn because this is a hard chapter on the surface it seems easy it seems like this is an easy chapter it has a there's an easy series of events for us that opens and happens before our eyes It doesn't seem like it's difficult to understand or grasp. But as you will see, when we read this chapter through the lens of the entire Bible, the truth that is contained within it becomes very challenging. Will cause us to go to the mat with the Lord once again. So let's step onto that mat. Let's suit up and begin to engage with our Lord. And as we do that, in what could be viewed as a warm-up, I'm going, to give, I'm going to read three more sections from our church's Elder Confession of Faith. Our Confession of Faith, the Elder Confession of Faith for this church, is a rendering of the Belgic Confession, which was written in 1559. We basically just updated it, replacing the ancient language with modern equivalents and doing away with much of the items that were pointed to the heresy of the Roman Catholic Church, since we are no longer subject to their dominance in our presence. So the first article I'm going to read is number 11, entitled, The Creation and Fall of Man, and His Incapability of Doing What is Truly Good. It reads, We believe God created man of dust from the ground, and he made and formed him after his own image and likeness, good, righteous, and holy. His moral will could conform to the will of God in every respect. But when man was in this high position, he transgressed the command of life which he had received. And by this sin, he broke away from God who was his life, and he corrupted all creation. By all this, he subjected man liable to spiritual and physical death. Man became wicked and perverse, corrupt in all his ways. Article 12, original and indwelling sin, which states, We believe that by the disobedience of Adam, original sin has spread throughout the whole human race. It is a corruption of the entire nature of man and a hereditary evil found even in infants in their mother's womb. It is their file, therefore so vile and abominable in the sight of God that it is sufficient to condemn the human race, and it is not abolished or eradicated even by regeneration. And then finally, Article 13, Divine Election. We believe God has manifested himself to be merciful and just, Merciful in rescuing and saving from his wrath those whom he, in his eternal and unchangeable counsel he has elected in Jesus Christ our Lord by his pure goodness, without any consideration of their works. Just in leaving the others in the fall and perdition into which they have plunged themselves. And these three articles, they all speak to the foundational issue which is found in today's chapter. The issue that is at the heart of today's text the grace of God in the life of a saved sinner. Verse 1, Then Jacob lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two servant women. Jacob had lived his whole entire adult life terrified of this day, He knew that one day he would have to face the wrath of the vengeance of his brother, which is why he divided his camp into two, why he has separated his family from both of them, why he then separated himself from all of them. Because when Esau attacked, he couldn't attack all of them at the same time. Some would be spared. His family might be spared. He most assuredly would have been spared. But now, however... Jacob acts differently than he has before, as told to us in verses 2 and 3. And he put the servant women and their children first, and Leah and her children after them, and Rachel and Joseph after them. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Before this day, he had used his slaves and even his flocks and his herds as shields against Esau, He had separated his clan into two parts, and then he remained at the back of the pack because he wanted to be in the best place to survive that imminent attack from Esau. But now, on this day, limping forward, this wounded and sleep-deprived man places himself squarely between his brother and all that he loved. And remember, he had no reason to believe that Esau would be coming for any other reason than to murder and to rape and to plunder. But the fear that Jacob had for Esau before this was well-founded because it was the ongoing treachery of Jacob towards his brother that culminated in the stealing of the blessing of his father that led to Jacob fleeing from his homeland to Laban in the first place. The last thing that Jacob knew of his brother Esau was that which was told to him by his mother in Genesis 27, verses 41 through 45. There, we're told, Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother. And then the words of the elder son Esau were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called her younger son Jacob and said to him, Behold your brother Esau, he is consoling himself concerning you by planning to kill you. So now, my son, listen to my voice. Arise, flee to Haran, to my brother Laban. Stay with him a few days until your brother's wrath subsides, until your brother's anger against you subsides and he forgets what you did to him. Then I will send and get you from there. Why should I be bereaved of both of you in one day? Mom had never sent for him. And Esau had left his parents' home and lifestyle and moved to the hill country of Seir. So as far as Jacob could tell, the anger of his brother had not subsided. And that he was heading toward him with 400 men could only mean that he meant to fulfill that vow that he had made those 20 plus years ago. And now, now, that day, the day that Jacob had feared would come, the day that had captivated his mind, worried his heart like a dog on a bone, that day was now here. And Jacob no longer feared. He had lost that fear. He had lost the fear of man when he had wrestled with his God the night before. He had met his maker, and he was no longer afraid of what any mere mortal could do to him. But imagine this scene in your mind. There stands Jacob, all alone, leaning on a staff, with a mob of men pressing hard down on him, and expecting the worst but hoping for the best and trusting in the Lord who had revealed his identity to him the night before, Jacob is standing there. And then we're given verse 4. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. The impossible, the improbable, the completely miraculous has happened. Grace has been shown to Jacob by a man that should never have shown him grace. And Esau wasn't faking it either. He actually truly cared and was happy to see Jacob, as evidenced by verses 5 through 8. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children who said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servant women came, with their children, and they bowed down. And Leah likewise came near with her children, and they bowed down. And then afterward, Joseph came near with Rachel, and they bowed down. And Esau said, What do you mean by all these camps which I have met? The arch enemy of Jacob, the reason for him fleeing his homeland so many years ago, he's being gracious and kind to a man who understands that knows in his heart that he does not deserve grace or mercy from him. And this is where we begin our wrestling match with the Lord. You see, when Jacob was asked by Esau who the women, not woman, who the women and the children were that were coming to meet him, Jacob responded and said, they're a gift from God. And? You're thinking, well, he either lies about who they are, or the Bible misspeaks about the reality or who they are, or they are, as the word says that they are, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Jacob here, he looks at all of his children, those conceived by his first wife, Leah, those conceived by his second wife, Rachel, those conceived by his third wife, Bilhah, and those conceived by his fourth wife, Zilpah. And he says, all of these children that came from this very sinful and sin-filled relationship, all of them were graciously given by God to Jacob, despite the fact that he is married to four women. One that he loves, and the other three, eh, not so much. Despite the fact that he has treacherously, tre- acted treacherously so often in this life, and this doesn't compute in our minds, and very much we don't like this reality, God doesn't bless sinners. God does not bless sinful actions. This is not the God that we know. And now you are beginning to understand why this chapter is going to be hard. Now you are beginning to understand the wrestling match that you are going to have to have with the Lord. Because this truth is hard. Because we know that if this is true... And because of the way that we think of God, the way that we love God, if this is true, then our hearts are going to go, let go. go Our hearts will let go of the humanistic morality that we have in our hearts, that we may find ourselves going hard after the sin that would please our flesh. If God blesses Jacob in his sin... We know that this kind of teaching may give license to debauchery, to sinfulness, and not to holiness. And when we really think through what Jacob has said, the truth that God blessed him with these children, we can't reconcile how God could bless a deceitful, conniving man who would use women as he has with Leah and Zilpah and Bilhah How God could bless a person such as this. Because this doesn't line up with our morality. And this is just a warm-up to the real wrestling match that we're going to have as we finish this chapter today. As uncomfortable as the reality that God has blessed this sinful man in his sin is, this isn't even the real wrestling match yet. This is just a warm-up, not the main event. We have to finish the chapter to get to that point. Verses 8 through 9. And he said, Jacob said to Esau, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. Now, These actions by Jacob were either done in trying to buy Esau off, or he was truly repentant over the theft of that which should have been Esau. And I would argue that it was the latter, that Jacob actually saw the Lord. He saw the Lord as of more value than the things that he had, that the Lord had given him. And in the best of his ability, he's trying to right the wrong that he had propagated against this man which is evidenced in how he responds to Esau, verses 10 and 11. And Jacob said, No, please. If now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from your hand. For I see your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. Please take my blessing which has been brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have everything. Thus he urged him and he took it. And once again in verse 9, we are faced with the reality of God that we don't like. Esau has been blessed by God as well. Even though he is not a chosen son, even though God said that he would serve Jacob, even though God said that he hated Esau, God still gave him the good things of this creation. And that doesn't make sense to us either. Because we desire God to make those that are not of him. We desire that they are given a hard, painful, lacking life. And we desire this in order that we can point to our easy, fun-filled, and toy-riddled life as the benefit of knowing God. Come to Jesus. The water in that pool that's located in your 10,000-square-foot house that God's going to give you for making that good choice, man, that water is great. But God doesn't work that way. In fact, many times he gives ease and comfort to those that don't know him. And those that are his, that are the joy that's set before him, very often he gives them hardship and poverty. And again, this doesn't compute. And Jacob was so amazed at the love in this man's eyes, that man that should hate him, that he understood that the only way that it could be there, the only way that Esau could love him was by divine intervention. He had seen God work in his life before, intervene in his life before. Laban had been warned by God concerning Jacob and and complied, but he didn't show the same kind of love and care that this man, who should never have showed love or care for Jacob, was showing him. Esau was being very loving, the very essence of grace and kindness to this man. So much so that he desired Jacob to come and live with them, as told to us at the beginning in verse 12. Then Esau said, Let us take our journey and go, and I will go before you. But Jacob said, My Lord my lord knows that the children are weak, and that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before my servant, And I will lead on slowly according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the pace of the children until I come to my lord at Seir. Now Esau, he was sincere in his desire for his brother to come and live with him. And Jacob, despite what we've been told before, Jacob is being sincere as well in his care for the youngsters and the young flocks. So Esau once again shows true loving kindness to Jacob. And yet another offer, verse 15. Then Esau said, well, let me leave some, um, some men with you. And again, Jacob replies with sincerity in his response. He said, why do this? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth. And built for himself a house and made booze for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Succoth. And what is told to us in verses 16 and 17 proves that the care that Jacob had for his youngsters and his young's livestock was true. He stopped there for a time, he stayed there until the young stock were old enough to safely cross the Jordan River. And it's then that we're given verses 18 through 20. Now, Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. When he came from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. Then he bought a portion of a field where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 kishtosh. And then he set up there an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Now, Shechem was more than likely not the place of where he stopped. It was more than likely named that way or told that way to us in the Bible just because it was the son of the king of that area. And this was in the promised land. And him purchasing that plot of land is reminiscent to what his grandfather did when he brought, bought a burial plot for, for Rachel. And you're sitting there wondering. We've come to the end of the chapter. Where, where's all this uncomfortableness that you were talking about, David? Sure, there are those two things that you pointed out before, the blessings of the polygamy of Jacob and giving him children. And, and then there was that reality that God had blessed Esau with more than he needed. But, but where is really this uncomfortableness that you were talking about, this wrestling match that we're going to have with the Lord? Perhaps the verses about the children of Jacob being a blessing from God, perhaps that might have caused you some amount of uneasiness. But somehow this account just seems to have ended happily. And this is only because we have not truly dealt with the reality that is spoken of here. The reality that is the underpinning of the foundation of this section of Scripture. You see, we, like Jacob, when he entered into the promised land, he was not looking for God. And very often, we do not do the same thing. Even when we read the Bible, we're happy to read the words. We're able, we're happy to absorb the concepts and the precepts of it. But we often do not do as David commended us to do in Psalm 1 verses 1 and 2 when he says, How blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And in his law he meditates day and light. We may do the first part. We may separate ourselves from the wicked, but we are way too busy to meditate on the law of Yahweh. And we are way too busy because we still fear man. And the man that we fear the most is living right inside of us, which is why we will not shut off the radio in the car, why we will always have some entertainment playing at home, because we fear being alone with God. We fear the old man. And our chapter from today and the reality that is found within it is unlocked by Romans 8 and 9. Grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans chapter 8. We're going to start with Romans 8, 28, verse 30. Verses that you may well be able to recite. But verses that we don't really understand in the way that they are intended for us to understand them Romans 8:28 and we know that for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would become, he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We may know these verses. You may be able to quote these verses back. But again, we don't meditate on them. We only know them in a manner that is outside of the biblical sense to know. But we are meant to know them in the biblical sense, in the same manner that Adam knew Eve. We are to to know these truths that intimately. God desires us to wrestle with the reality of who he is, to wrestle with him. And he does it. Because it's in that intimate contact with him that you will finally, you will finally then have God, the Lord of your salvation, become more intimate, more real to you. And you will lose more and more of the old man that clings to you. And you will be able to see him better through those eyes of faith, through that glass that we look through darkly now. He desires us to wrestle with him this very moment concerning the man from our account. The man who is the most gracious and kind man in our account from today. The man who showed true brotherly love to Jacob. That man who was merciful, loving, the man that God hated and could not ever, under any circumstance outside of God, be redeemed. In order to finally, to truly know Romans 8:28 through 30, you have to know, and to know today's um, chapter as well, we have to deal with the reality of Romans 9 in light of this man Esau. Paul, the man that God used to pen that letter to the church in Rome, he had gone to the mat with the Lord. He had had his own wrestling match with God. God had used blindness and then years of isolation as a training mat for Paul. You see, Paul was not unlike most of us. He loved his fellow man. Not just his immediate family, but also his people. The the heart that Paul had for his fellow Jews is revealed to us beginning in verse one of Romans nine. He says, "I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to my flesh, who are Israelites." To whom belong the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants of the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul loved his fellow man, specifically the Jewish people. And this isn't hyperbole. He's not just saying this. He's not saying, I love these guys to get effect or sympathy from people. He truly meant it. So much so that he actually swears by God that this is the case. And this is not uncommon though. We humans, we, well, we love ourselves, amen? Amen. And we love other humans too. We genuinely love them and desire the best for them. Think about your family members. Do you not truly love them and desire the best for them? And this is good. This was the heart that Paul had for people as well. And at the same time, realized that Paul knew that he was one of those that were spoken of, that were predestined, that were called, that were justified, that were glorified. He knew this to be true. And he also knew that he had done nothing to garner this most blessed of positions. He wasn't really that smart. He wasn't that nice. And he most certainly wasn't that good looking. And he looked around him, just like we do. And he saw people who were smart, who are good looking, who are truly nice, who are much kinder and much more giving than he was. People who were not of the elect. And his heart broke for them. He looked at these ordinary Jewish people who had not persecuted the church that we, the way that he had, who had not hunted down men, women, and children and forced them to repent of their calling and die. He had done that. He had been that man. And he looked around and he saw kind and gentle and sweet people who were not the joy that was set before Christ. And this is the reality of Romans eight twenty-eight through 30 and Romans 9, 1 through 5. But what did Paul do with this pain? What did he do with this truth? Did he alter God to reflect his version of who he would want God to be? Did he throw out the truth of God in predestination because there were those that he knew could not come to saving knowledge of God because of it. He wanted to. His heart broke over those nice, kind, loving people. People who were good. People who were funny. People who were great to be around. People Like Esau. No. No. He spoke the reality of the God who had bested him in every turn, who he was fully submitted to. He said of this God, beginning in verse 6 of Romans 9, but it's not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's seed but through Isaac your seed will be named you see paul understood that the word of god is truth god does so love the world as told to us in john 3:16 and as revealed to us in romans 8:28 through 30 and not all israel are descended from israel romans 9:1 through 5 that is the children of the flesh are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are considered as seed. And this is the same truth that Jesus said in John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, when he said, He came to that which was his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man." but of God. And this is the conundrum that Paul was facing. What do you do? What do you do with the love that you have for people, especially for those kind and nice people, those that you dearly love, who you know are better people than you are, and who reject Christ as Lord? He reached back to Genesis chapter 33. He reached back to the account from today to biblically resolve this problem. He said in verse 9 of Romans 9, For this is the word of promise. Again, sola scriptura. Thus says the word. Paul doesn't use human logic. He doesn't use reason. He doesn't use emotionalism to describe or even try to define God. He uses Scripture. He just opens the door of Scripture and allows the lion of the tribe of Judah to define himself. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad, so that the purpose of God, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated And throughout the account that's given us concerning Jacob and Esau, it is always Esau who is consistently the one who is upright with his dealings with people. He is the one that is the honest man. He is the better man. And the only thing that we can really say bad about him was he got mad because his birthright was taken from him and vowed to kill his brother. But it's he, this man who God says he hates, he hates who, when his brother meets up with him, flings himself at Jacob, but not to harm, but to hug. And there's only one explanation for this happening. God has worked such a miracle in his life that his heart is no longer desiring to murder his brother. God did this. He did not. Remember Romans 8, 28? For we know that for those who love God, all things work together. For those who are called according to his purpose. The love that Esau had for his brother is not because he was a swell guy. It's because of the common grace of God bestowed on him and giving him the ability to love and even to be loved. And this is why he's acting this way. This is why he is loving, caring, And it's all due, it's all because of the special grace that God has bestowed on his much worse brother, Jacob. And we don't like to think that God deals with people in this way either. We don't like to think that he plays favorites. As a parent, you're told you can't have favorites because that's unloving, that's unkind. But God seemingly has favorites, God does play favorites. What we have convinced ourselves of concerning God, what we like to think, is that He deals favorably with those that He loves. But those that He doesn't, He just basically ignores. Those that are not predestined, that are not elected, not called, He doesn't even think about them. What we do is that we desire in our heart to believe that God is a respecter of men. We don't actually like to think that God moves in the lives of people that are not of him for the good of the elect, for the good of the church. We don't like to think this way because if this is true, then we may also have to accept that he may harden people's hearts. That he may remove his hand of grace from our marriage and have our spouse go off the deep end and leave us. That he may remove his hand of grace from that loner and have them give in to their sinful desire to murder masses of people. That he may do this for our good and for his glory. God would never do that because God is a respecter of men. If Romans 9 is not offensive to your flesh, you have not truly dealt with Romans 9. What it is telling us, because Romans 9 is hard, it is gut-wrenching, false, God-shattering truth that is offensive, and it goes against everything that we think that we know about God. Oh, it may say that he hated Esau, but it doesn't really mean that he would change his, his heart, drive him to a forsaken area, have him marry contentious women. God wouldn't do that. People do that. He would not change Esau's heart towards Jacob just to be a blessing to him. Are you starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable now? Well, god understands that's why he had paul pen verse 14 of romans 9. what shall we say then is there any unrighteousness with god may it never be for he says to moses i will have mercy on who i have mercy and i will have compassion on whom i have compassion Paul understood the reality that God was telling us here, just how icon-shattering, false God-destroying truth this is. This is is not an easy-to-believe, easy-to-explain, easy-to-feel-good-about kind of truth. And God knows how hard this truth is, even for those that have had our hearts regenerated. We need to go to the mat with the Lord to know who he is and not who he is in our minds. And he goes on in verse 16. So then it does not depend on the one who wills or on the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. What this means is that your will does not matter concerning God and we do not like this truth because we desire our will to matter. We desire God to be a respecter of men. And you're thinking in your head, God does not work this way in humans. He never acts this way with humans. Well, may I submit to you Daniel chapter four? Listen to Daniel chapter four, beginning in verse 28. All this reached Nebuchadnezzar the king, and all this that mentions there, this is a dream that God gave to this king concerning what would happen to him if he continued on in his pride. And this happened before he is saved, not afterwards. And at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal house by the strength of my power and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is said, The kingdom has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind. And your place of habitation will be with the beasts of the field, and you will be given grass to eat like cattle. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you know that the Most High is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind and gives it to whomever he wishes. Yeah, God did this. He did this to a created in his image being. A man who is wise, who is proud, who is smart, turned into an animal who eats grass for his food. And immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was accomplished. And he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle feathers and his nails like bird claws. And put yourself in the position of Nebuchadnezzar, because you are no different than he is. How would you feel having God act this way to you? Again, God did this. And the man who this happened, he is the one who is recounting this event to us. He goes on and says, at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes towards heaven and my knowledge returned to me and I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will. In the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can strike against his hand or say to him, What have you done? This man, Nebuchadnezzar, knew after being taken to the map by the Lord. He was very confident of who God was and how he operated, which is why he says he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can strike his hand or say to him, What have you done? And again, this is the same thing that God is telling us again, this time through Paul, back in Romans 9, where it's finishing telling of the God who, who God really truly is in verses 17 and 18 of Romans 9. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you, in order that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then... He has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. And God did not harden Pharaoh's heart because Pharaoh hardened it first. God did not go along with Pharaoh's plan. That is not what God says that he did. Once again, read that flesh-destroying chapter in Romans concerning Pharaoh. For the scripture says to Pharaoh... For this reason, for this very purpose, I raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you, not to you. And in order that my name might be publicly proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. God specifically says he is the one. He created this man. He was the one who got him in the position that he was in. He was the one that made it possible for him to become Pharaoh. And he was the one who knowingly, willingly hardened his heart and then killed his firstborn son. And then killed him and the majority of that military force that was left as a red sea came crashing down on them. Is God truly a respecter of men? He did this. And all of this happened for our good and for his glory. And this is not an easy truth to deal with. It wrecks our minds. It causes us to be uneasy because we desire God, we desire him to be nice. We desire to be able to tell those that want to trash God, no, 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 God's nice. He's like that grandpa that's always going to give you those things that you want. Whatever you ask for, he's going to give that to you. We want to think these things. And they're not true. Not the way that you think anyway. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying that God is not nice. What I am saying is that God is nice in the way that he deems nice to actually be, not the way that we want to think that nice is. God is glorious in his salvation. He is magnificent in his essence. And above all, he is holy. And if you have been given the honor, the privilege to be in his family, you should rejoice simply because of that. He is the greatest gift you will ever receive. And this is the reality of Romans 8:28 through 30. And at the same time, you need to realize that what you think God is like is more than likely wrong. And this is why we are given accounts such as ours from today because we need to be confronted with the reality of the goodness of our God to those whom he loves and how he is actually, actually, actually sovereign over all things. There are no accidents in life. And no, people are not kind to you because you're special. And you didn't get that job because of your talents. And your marriage is not on solid ground because you are smart. And that car crash that you just had didn't happen because you're unlucky. All these things, they're all reality because of the will of God and no other reason. God is not a respecter of humans, any of us. He uses humans as he sees fit. Because we are the work of his hands. And saints, we are his. We need to understand how amazing the truth of Romans eight twenty-eight through 30 is, especially in light of Romans 9. And we are given chapters like today's to cause us to revel, to revel in the amazing grace that God has bestowed on us. And then live in that grace. When you understand that, when you understand that God is sovereign over all things, then those unsafe people being nice and being kind to you will finally make sense. They're not doing this because you're such a swell person. It's God acting on your behalf for his glory. And it's then that we can stop trying to make God relatable, easy, kind, a respecter of humans. We are given chapters such as today's, in order that all the glory due the name of God is given to him in and through our lives. Saints, stop and ponder at the grace that has been given to you. The amazing saving grace of God in your salvation. And then, and then, wonder at the amazingness of his common grace as he works all things together for your good. And when you begin to see Romans 8, 28 through 30 in this way, then you can begin to understand how amazing common grace truly is and how that common grace works for our good and for his glory.